0: Welcome to episode fifty-nine of the unofficial seventy-five greatest Marvel stories countdown podcast. In this podcast, we are going to be discussing and examining the seventy-five greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday through June first, two thousand sixteen. And this week, we are rejoined by Alan Middleton, who was last with us in episode sixty-six, discovering or discussing Thor three sixty-two. Welcome back, Alan.
1: Glad to be here.
0: And for those who were listening to that podcast and have been waiting in suspense about one of the ideas that we had out there and never quite followed up on, I can now confirm that yes, toenails do float so the boat can work. Seven weeks,
1: seven weeks of sleepless nights you've put these poor listeners through waiting to get that answer.
0: Yeah, well, I figured it was only fair to answer it on your next (laughs) appearance, so.
1: Well, glad to be back.
0: Glad to have you back. This week, we are discussing Iron Man Armor Wars, originally published under the story title Stark Wars. The countdown listings listed as issues 225 to 231. Those are the issues that we're going to be discussing, at least. Those are the ones I read in this, because I am reading exactly as they are listed in Marvel's published list. Issue 232 is officially titled as the Stark Wars epilogue, so there may be a little more of the story there.
1: Which I did not read.
0: Okay, Neither have I, so... The story was plotted by scriptor David Michelinie and inker Bob Layton, as were many of the Iron Man stories of this era, penciled by Mark D. Bright. The colorist for most issues was Bob Sharon, although Nell Yomtov pitched in for 226, lettered by Janice Chiang. The editor was Mark Gruenwald, and this came out during editor-in-chief Tom DeFalco's era in Marvel. Cover dates range from December 1987 to June 1988, release dates as far as Mike has been able to determine for Mike's Amazing World of Comics, ranged from September 15th, 1987 to February 23rd, 1988. And as you can guess by the episode number, it came out as story number 59 in the countdown.
1: And all of these books had a 75-cent cover price, except for the first one, which was extra length and cost a $1.25. For Blaine my other neighbors to the north, that was 95 cents for you. Or a loony 75 respectively
0: yes and this would have been in the early days of the (laughs) loony. i remember those days when everyone was hoarding loonies and people were getting on the radio going if you're gonna hoard something horn the paper bills they're the ones that are gonna go away
1: (laughs) but whatever you do don't hoard your comic books from this era that is a losing investment proposition just throwing that out
0: (laughs) yeah it's been a while since there were issues that really went up in price Unlike action comics number one, you are not gonna be able to sell your copy of Sleepwalker number one for two million.
1: But that is how I have found my niche in podcasting, talking about the cheapest comics that I can find. I, I, I take that as my personal specialty and after twenty seven years of marriage, I think my wife would agree.
0: As as a listener to the Quarterbin Podcast, another podcast in the relatively geeky network, I would say you're doing well. You're getting some very good content out of them.
1: So far so good.
0: Yeah. Even if they're not always good reads, they do make good podcasts. Yeah, there
1: you go. That, that is all we can ask for sometimes.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Believe me, I've got some that I could send you.
1: <laughs> now, for what it's worth, I have found a lot of Marvel books from this era, obviously, in the cheap ends. But from what I can tell, according to my records, I've only found one of these particular issues, issue 227 for some reason, as a quarter book. So maybe that means something. I'm not sure what it means, but maybe that means something. That the rest of the arc has not yet found its way.
0: <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. The Stark Wars as they were published, or Armor Wars as they've been collected right. repeatedly since then, is known for being one of the better Iron Man stories out there. Yeah, yeah some people know, I took a break from collecting comics in both junior high, high school. Came back when the movies started to hit big. Primarily the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man film was what brought me back in. And I've been looking for sort of the classic arcs on all these characters that I hadn't read before. Because my reading as a teenager was almost exclusively G.I. Joe, New Warriors, and the Mm, X-Books. So I was trying to branch out. And when I asked people, what classic Iron Man stories should I read? This is consistently one of the first ones they point me to.
1: Right, And that's that's not that dissimilar a story to mine. I bowed out of comics after my, my daughter was born. Career changes, went back to school. Try to be a grown-up, all those things, and was out of comics for about 15 years, early to mid-90s to the mid-2000s or so, which has the great advantage of I missed the boom and bust of the 90s, so I count that as a blessing. But really what brought me back was listening to comic book podcasts and listening to folks talk about some of these great stories that had happened in the 80s or 90s or, or even into the 2000s. That's really what brought me back. But I had this one all along. Iron Man's one of the longest runs that I had and still have. So these ones were easy to find. It was just a matter of finding which box they were in. (laughs) And of course, as a finance guy, as a certified public accountant, they were uh, alphabetized and in proper numerical order. So finding them was not a problem.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, one of the perks to the way I've been collecting comics. I got in shortly before Graphic Imaging Technology Corporation got the license (laughs) to do the PDF releases. (laughs) Marvel's Comics. So my first copy of these that I owned is the 40 Years of Iron Man DVD-ROM Complete Collection. So that's what I went to, a combination of that and Marvel Digital Limited to read the individual issues here, depending on which device was most (laughs) convenient
1: at the time. I mean, I, I was brought back through, really through trade paperbacks, many of those at our local public libraries. When I'd hear someone talk about 100 Bullets or Fables or The Walking Dead, that's the way that I first started getting into those, was finding them on the shelves. A very convenient way for, for readers to to get caught up on stories like this.
0: It is, and might be spoiling a bit of the end talk here, but I think this is one that's worth catching <laughs> yeah, up on. And,
1: and the fact that this one is well-respected is obvious in the fact that it's been sequelized, or at least adapted in the comics. It's been in, in various animated series. Most animated series it seems like that Marvel has done with Iron Man has had some version of Armor Wars in it or uses it as a jumping off point and one of the rumors is Iron Man Four, the movie might have an Armor Wars component to it.
0: Yeah. The unannounced Iron Man Four. <laughs> so but there could be these elements in it. And a lot of that one of the things you like to talk about is the significance of the story in terms of the character and in terms of the comic industry as a whole, and that's tied very closely to the plot synopsis. One of the ethical questions that people often throw out with comics, usually in the context of Batman and the Joker, is at which point does the villain's body count become the responsibility of the hero for allowing that villain to continue operation, right? At which point is Batman responsible for the people the Joker's killed because the Batman hasn't killed the Joker? That's a question Mm -hmm. sometimes asked on the comic page, Mm More often asked outside the comic page by people who are explaining why they have no interest in comics. This is something that they see as a flaw. That question is the launch point for this story. Right.
1: And I, I think there's something to be said, not necessarily for the deconstruction of heroes, you know, that trope or that trend, but I think there is something about analyzing or looking at the villain or the antagonist's point of view. There are ways to tell this story, for example, where Iron Man is not the hero. He's the hero. Because the book is called Iron Man. If the book were mm-hmm. called something else, if it were the West Coast Avengers telling the story, their characters, or if it were even from the U.S. government's perspective, then Iron Man would be the villain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sometimes that – like you say, it's a, it's a it's a matter of perspective whose story you're telling. Hero in the literary sense, not hero in the sense of being a good guy.
0: Yeah. Iron Man is the clear protagonist yes. of the story. Mm-hmm but there is a distinction between protagonist and person who's right.
1: <laughs> so let me tell you what happens in this story and it does cover seven issues so I you've done some long issue arcs in this uh, in this series so far but it's tough even at a couple of paragraphs an issue. This is going to this is going to be a couple minutes long so walk you through what happens in Iron Man 225 through 231. For context, this is the era where Iron Man is in the red and silver armor. And we start off, it really is a a continuation of the prior issue. He's analyzing some weaponry confiscated from force. And to his dismay, Tony finds out that the armor is based on his own stolen designs. So he starts with a list of several armored criminals, the Beetle or Shockwave or Doc Doom, Stiltman, etc. Scott Lang helps Tony discover that it was the Spymaster who stole Tony's designs to uh, Justin Hammer. Iron Man first takes out Stiltman, who had the bad luck to break into an office building just at that moment. Next, Iron Man takes down the controller. His plan is to take out every armored warrior who possibly has his designs so he can't be held responsible for the damage that they do while in that armor. The Raiders invade an Air Force plane. Iron Man defeats them by using a recently invented negator pack or negator pack which disables negates the stolen technology but no other technology so it's a way of determining if a piece of armor has his tech in it word comes that the u.s government wants iron man shut down tony announces that iron man to put it in layman's terms has been fired from stark enterprises iron man's reign of terror (laughs) against against a armored villains continues with beetle as his next victim now nick fury of shield or as we say white nick fury of shield meets with tony and forces stark to give him iron man's information iron man's file and he does but with a fake identity tony and fury become allies to create a command base but tony's really intending to destroy shield's mandroids because they also have some of his technology that he's designed And so, of course, a battle ensues, and Iron Man defeats a bunch of the Mandroids. Meanwhile, Electro is defeated by the Guardsmen and imprisoned at the Vault. But it's not Electro in the suit, it's Rhodey. It's all part of a plan to get Iron Man snuck into the Vault to neutralize the Guardsmen, because, as with the Mandroids, he's seeking to prevent others from replicating his own technology. Iron Man's caught the attention of the Captain. He's not Captain America at this exact point. Now Steve Rogers does not question Tony's motives but he does call out his methods as reckless and dangerous and although his teammates are hesitant to do it just yet the West Coast Avengers are considering kicking Tony off the team Tony flies to Russia and faces the Crimson Dynamo and the Titanian Man who the Russian leaders have told them to defend their people because they know Iron Man is on his way to continue this personal vendetta he has against the armored crowd. The Crimson Dynamo's armor is is nullified, and Iron Man then flies into space with the Titanian Man. But the bad guy's armor overheats, setting it on fire and killing the man inside. Russia is rightly enraged at Iron Man. Hawkeye says, look, dude, this is the last straw. Iron Man stripped of his membership in the West Coast Avengers. Now, a U.S. test pilot has been demonstrating some new super-duper armor called the Firepower armor. A Stark rival named Edwin Cord is talking to a general and saying they really need to jumpstart this plan to defeat Iron Man once and for all. So, of course, Firepower lures Iron Man into a trap because he th- assumes or thinks that Firepower's armor may have, again, some of his own technology inside. Iron Man struggles to fight Firepower, who has superior, well, Firepower. Just in the nick of time, Rhodey rescues Iron Man. Iron Man leads the final assault, and in retaliation, Firepower launches a nuclear missile at Iron Man, seemingly killing our hero in the process. But the armor that was destroyed was, of course, remote-controlled. So Tony survived that attack, albeit severely injured. Firepower destroys several Stark facilities. Revealing to Tony that Kor just wants revenge for a bad business deal from about 85 issues ago, Tony invents new armor and, of course, finally defeats Firepower. During the fight, Firepower's armor is damaged, which is also carrying a bomb, which Tony disables, of course. That night, Tony decides that he does need to continue as Iron Man, for there's some dangers that only Iron Man can handle. At peace. For the first time since the Armor Wars began, Tony manages to get a good night's sleep. The end. Yes,
0: of this, aside from the epilogue that we didn't
1: read. (laughs) Technicalities, Blaine, technicalities.
0: Yeah. So it's it's as ended as comic book story arcs get. So as you heard from the synopsis, it is a pretty dense story, as you can imagine. Uh, It does come from the era where they were just moving into the dedicated comic store. They had been around for close to a decade, but there was still a significant portion of comics being sold on the newsstands, which means a lot of people following it couldn't necessarily pick up the next issue. Reading it in one sitting today doesn't read quite as well, because you get a lot of expository recaps of the story arc to date in the dialogue, because was before Bill Jameis... Well, Bill Jameis is the one that's credited by a lot of people for putting those recap pages in, starting with the Ultimate Universe. I found some in the late 90s, too. They were already there.
1: Well, it's it's not so much a dedicated recap page necessarily Like at the beginning. It's not so much in the Mm -hmm. last issue, but it's somewhere in page three or four or five. There just happens to be a conversation where Tony says, yeah, I am worried that my armor is my technology is going to hurt people. I have to find all the people who have my technology. I know you said that 20 pages ago. You said that 15 minutes ago when I was reading it or a month ago when I was Mm -hmm. reading
0: it. Yeah, and those conversations on the story page are often with Rhodey, who's the only guy who knows what's going on. So it it is one of the flawed tropes of the era where it's, the dialogue is about getting readers up to speed if they miss an issue or they start with this issue. More so than having natural dialogue between the characters. Right. Right, Right. it's as they refer to it on the Nerdist Writers panel, it's the, why did you tell me I'm your brother? I know I'm your brother (laughs) kind of conversation that you get in TV pilots. Right. Right, it's that awkward let's establish relationships piece (laughs) so but it it does come out very well because what ends up happening is aside from the last two issues for the most part each issue can stand alone right so you can read just tony versus crimson dynamo and titanium man or just tony versus man droids and you know some people call him white nick fury i go with nicholas joseph fury senior because i'm very pedantic about characters middle names. My database softwareless Iron Man is Anthony Edward Stark.
1: <laughs> well I I over on the Quarterbin podcast, I have referred to that character as Nick David Hasselhoff Fury.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I try not to make the association with David Hasselhoff if I could do it.
1: Now I like this this era of the book. I really like Tony on the West Coast. I just think I just that's such a change of pace from every other major Marvel character. You know, to have him not in New York City. I just like that change of pace.
0: I can see that. It's my own history with Iron Man. I have read What's in the Essentials. I've read Demon in a Bottle. Mm -hmm. I have now read this. (laughs) And then a couple of the Infinity War and Gauntlet crossover issues. Sorry about that. And then from there, I pick up with uh, Heroes Reborn. I've also read the issues where he encounters Doctor Doom, I think in the issues 150 and 250.
1: We talked when we did the Thor issue seven episodes back, that I liked that story, but it's not my favorite. My favorite Thor story was not in the list of 75. In the same way, my favorite Iron Man story is the one you mentioned. It's 149 and 150, continued in 249 and 250, and then actually continued in a miniseries about a dozen yeah. years later, Doom Quest. It's basically is probably the best way to explain it. Or Doom and Tony go to Camelot, and that's my favorite Iron Man story. If people know me, I'm a huge Doctor Doom fan, so that's not a surprise but that's a, this might very well be my second favorite <laughs> iron man story though and that's pretty high praise for something not involving doctor doom he's just name checked once and briefly passed on
0: <laughs> yeah he shows up he's in armor but that is one of the things i do like about this is it does show the level of doom's intellect that there's all these guys out there with armor and doom doesn't need to steal tony's stuff he can make awesome exactly. armor all on his exactly. own <laughs> everybody else is stealing tony's stuff <laughs> the fact that Doom is not in here I think is actually more in line with Doom's character and shows more respect for the character Mm -hmm. than (laughs) they could otherwise have done. It would have been inappropriate for Doom to be one of the guys with Tony's armor.
1: And in terms of my history with these, the single longest comic run that I own currently and probably have ever owned is Iron Man 145 to 319. So about a 15 year run. And this is almost smack dab right in the middle of that. So when this came out, I was a, a regular purchaser of the product. I like that Iron Man delivers just a, a diverse bunch of stories. You've got the straight hero stories, solo stories, team stories. You've got the personal pathos. Uh, some of that is in here this guilt about his creations being used in a villainous way. Also, the business stories. I do go by the name professor allen and it because i am an actual business professor at an actual state university so the business side the stark enterprises angle i was even digging those back in the day i'm sure for some that can just be the slow low point of the stories please get out of the boardroom and get back into the armor i'm, I'm sure some people must think but even those stories i dig so it's possible that iron man it might not be my favorite marvel hero but the Iron Man, the comic, at least from this era, was far and away my favorite comic title that was going on during this pretty long, long t- time frame.
0: Yeah, I do want to get back and read more Iron Man from this era, because as I said, I've got some pretty whopping gaps. I mean, part of me is curious about Teen Tony just to see if it's as horrible as I expect it to be from the way it's been described.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we we talked a little bit about, you know, how much of this this creation of this list was, you know, the... Straight the voters, and how much Marvel had had some to do with it. It does seem to be it was mostly the voters. But I I like the fact that there is at least a representative, and probably the best representative of the this Michelaney Layton run. Kind of in the same way, it was appropriate that there are a couple of Simons and Thor stories in the list. You almost have to have those long, classic, almost you know authoritative runs from these creators on this list, and I'm glad that it worked out that way.
0: Yeah, the the Michelinie run and Bob Layton together, Mm -hmm. that's a pairing I have heard about time and again. So as I said, when I was putting people, you know, putting out feelers for what should I read, people were just saying, get this run, right? And some of them would list Armor Wars as a highlight of the run, but a lot of them are just saying Michelinie and Layton. I mean, it's also nice because you don't commonly get inkers that have a lot of input in terms of storytelling. Right a lot of times they're treated just sort of as the workhorse. It's almost like the in-betweener in animation. Right, right. You get the odd in-betweener that gets an option to move forward. Look at Bruce Timm. Mm-hmm. He was an in-betweener in Warner Studios who just happened to go outside to smoke in the same place <laughs> as one of the execs when the exec was going, you know, they had a bit of a friendship and the exec was going, man, we need someone to do this Batman cartoon because we've got this thing coming. And Bruce Timm said, well, here's what I would do with it and got the project. And the exec he was talking to had no idea. He just handed Batman to an in-betweener. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That should probably explain what in-betweeners are. If you read the credits on animation, you'll see lead animators and in-betweeners. The lead animators, they'll do the character designs to some degree, and they'll design how the character moves. But when you've got 24 frames a second or 30 frames a second, depending on whether you're doing it for feature films or TV, and whether it's NTSC or PAL or whatever, that's a lot of frames to draw, right? If your character has an hour of screen time, that's 3,600 seconds times however many frames a second that you have to fill in. You could be looking at 108,000 drawings. That takes time. So the lead animators will say, okay, this is what this animation will look like roughly by saying, these are frames 1, 12, 37, and 52.
1: (laughs) You you fill in the rest.
0: Yeah, the in-betweeners have to draw in someone else's style to connect those gaps. It's much like inkers. When they do the job well, it's invisible. You don't see their work unless it's bad. Unless you're really into the art and into the industry. I'm sure the pencilers will say, no, I like Inker A versus Inker B. But as a reader, unless they really mess up, <laughs> it's it's hard to see the difference. The only other Inker I could think of who really had input on story was Andy Lanning. Right. So Stan right. Abnett and Andy Lanning as a team, right. Abnett started as the scripter, Lanning started as the Inker, but they plotted a lot together, including sort of Marvel's cosmic renaissance of the past decade, which, I mean, sadly, they don't seem to be a team yeah, anymore. That's... But yeah, if you haven't read the cosmic renaissance, well, we will get to that <laughs> and discuss some of what they did down the road. And when I say down the road, I mean episode 16.
1: Oh, that is down the road. That's uh, that's quite some time from here.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's actually further along than the other Iron Man nope. solo story at spot 29. But... Anyway, that's a pretty massive digression.
1: <laughs> I do have to make one one comment here, which probably applies to many of the books of this particular era and I don't always like current you know paper stock or current cover stock. Those books almost seem too slippery, almost seem too good in some ways. but modern coloring is definitely i don't know a million times better than the coloring uh, of this era, especially the hair. There are a few panels in here, I don't know what version you're looking at, but The originals, Tony has green hair in a couple of panels, and Justin Hammer has some nice lavender hair uh, a few times. This is obviously a shading issue, how to get that shading, but it's still, to say the least, a little off-putting. And it's that sort of, I think, just the color separation, the color gradations, the modern technology has done worlds of good in that era of comics. Compared to these, which admittedly make for a couple of chuckles, but probably not what they were going for.
0: Yeah, comic book coloring and Men in Black are probably the two things Malibu will be remembered for. Because <laughs> they were the ones who really turned around the coloring side of the industry. And yeah, I noticed some of that when I was reading it off the DVD ROM. As some of you may know, when GitCorp still had the license to do the DVD ROMs, and I'm still annoyed at how quickly it got yanked and when specifically it got yanked because they were. Two issues shy of finishing their Daredevil collection and five issues shy of finishing Thor when they lost the license. And Daredevil is far and away my favorite comic book character. Getting that complete run cost me a whole lot more in the long run than a $50 DVD would have. But they would actually just do PDF scans of the issues. So if you've got them that way, you've got the original ads, you've got the original letters, columns, and the original coloring. On Marvel Digital Unlimited, I didn't notice any of that, so they seem to have. Right. tinkered and actually sure. represented the colors the way they intended exactly. to be represented. Exactly.
1: That seems to me to be a reasonable use of editing and changes, as opposed to, as has been done a few times, changing verbiage, changing language to retcon something or to... I think that's a less appropriate use of that <laughs> the reprinting technology. But fixing something that's an obvious mistake or an obvious just lack of what the technology could do that seems reasonable that you did mention the ads I just, I just have to point out one and there's a, an ad that runs in in three or four of these listing comic book shops so it's the marvel Supermart ad, a full page ad listing about 15 or 20 comic shops and the only reason i mention it is because two of those were at various points my comic shop and i thought that was a pretty amazing coincidence One is from uh, Laurel, Maryland, Comics Classics, and uh, that was my first LCS in the early to mid-80s. And then when I went off to college, Dave's Comics in Virginia, so I just thought it was great that there were, out of, what, 15 or 20 stores listed there, that two of them were at one point or another my local LCS, just an oddball coincidence, or East Coast dominance of the comics market at the time. Maybe both do them.
0: Yeah, it really could be either one. <laughs> yeah, I'm used to my region getting ignored because of the population density. Yeah. Geographically <laughs> speaking, my hometown is physically, has the, the largest surface area of any city in North America. And the population is just a little over 1 million.
1: Yikes. Everyone's got plenty of room.
0: Yeah, we've got a downtown airport with no major water feature. So to keep the approach lanes clear... <laughs> right. We had to build out instead of up.
1: Right. Okay.
0: <laughs> and when you're in the middle of a very large prairie, you can do that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, from there, I mean, I think the only thing left, my personal story, as people have, may have heard, I've been meaning to get to it for a while. I got around to reading it for the podcast. So that's going to happen less and less often as we get to the lower number episodes, believe me. Right. <laughs> but readers have been hearing that a lot lately. <laughs>
1: I I definitely think this is a, a you know this is well known as a story. It certainly has a catchy name. Yes. Armor Wars it's actually catchier than Stark Wars the original one. Yeah, I would agree with that. It is a great premise. I don't mean, we didn't really talk about that aspect of it, but I think the idea that Tony would be bothered mm-hmm. by the fact that of stolen technology being used in a, for nefarious purposes that that seems a pretty reasonable motivation. For yep. someone like him. So I think this one is very deserving to be here on the list. I was a little more hesitant to say that about the one back at number 66, but I think this one definitely belongs here or maybe a little higher on the list. I, I definitely think this is more than seven spots better yeah. than that Thor story, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. I think this is very good.
0: Yeah, it is enjoyable. And it, it catches the science geek in me, too, with the bit about Titanium Man. There is a line <laughs> where Tony says, once titanium starts burning, you can't put it out, which sounds nonsensical to a lot of people. Titanium, once you burn it with oxygen, it burns very hot. And frankly, it burns hot enough that it starts burning with and reacting with nitrogen as well. It'll catalyze that reaction. And that becomes a self-sustaining reaction. So if titanium starts to burn within the atmosphere... It will continue to burn within the atmosphere, because anything we've got that we throw at it gets overpowered by an atmosphere that's 78% nitrogen.
1: So the poor guy in that suit had no chance.
0: Yeah, titanium is... It's a really bad idea to make armor out of titanium, (laughs) especially when you're coming off the Vietnam era, frankly, because if you're up against titanium man, and you're not a superhero who tries not to kill who you're up against, if you're going up against, say, the US military, (laughs) napalm takes you down because napalm burns hot enough to get this right. process started. <laughs> so Titanium Man works against an Iron Man with scruples, but we can see what happens with it. <laughs> that property of titanium is not common knowledge. So I did like the fact that, to me, that that shows that either David Michelinie was interested in science in general, or he said Titanium Man and went and researched titanium right. to see what he can deal with and if there's anything he'd use in a story, and he found this. Mm-hmm. So from there, the last thing we really like to hit in terms of the stories itself is whether or not there's any deeper meanings or messages or themes, because often what propels a story to greatness is that there's more meanings than you'll find on the surface. This story, aside from Spider-Man's origin, this I would say is probably the the second highest story in terms of actions have consequences and taking responsibility for your decisions. Iron Man said he did not ask the West Coast Avengers for help because they might have said yes, and he knew this would turn him into a criminal. I'm not sure why that criminal record is enough to get Hawkeye to kick you out of the Avengers. To me, that seems a little blind to history, you know, because their charter is very, very clear. (laughs) Says the guy who at one point was, you know, when he first joined the Avengers, 75% of the Avengers were convicted criminals. (laughs) This is about Tony, and it's not, this is even the indirect actions. This isn't Batman allows the Joker to live. This isn't something Tony allowed to happen. The technology was outright stolen. If somebody took him to court, he would come out free and clear as far as the courts were concerned, because you've got someone who's known as the spy master, right? One of the planet's greatest spies is the guy who managed to steal this tech from him. They're not necessarily going to hold Tony responsible for
1: that. Right. But he feels
0: it. He does. And he takes that responsibility upon himself to eliminate any chance of this happening again, which is why he's going after even the good guys.
1: Right. And I like the fact that. And despite the book being called Iron Man and he being ostensibly the hero, as as we talked about before, that other heroes are willing to call him out on his actions. And I like that. There's this constant thread throughout the stories of growing unease. And you, as you did, you could somewhat dismiss the West Coast Avengers, but you can't dismiss Steve Rogers. Yeah. If he has some concerns about your actions, your actions may be problematic. Oh, yeah. He does not go off half-cocked about these things. In that interaction, you know, Cap does not question Tony's motives. He sort of understands that, but he does call him out on getting really close to the line, if not crossing it. And then when he goes to Russia, and as we said, the titanium man ends up dying as a result, direct result of his actions, then we've taken it a step further. Yeah. And I like those, as you said, those consequences, those actions and consequences aspect of the storyline. I hadn't really thought about it that way. But I think that's probably what I was sensing mm-hmm. as uh, an, an attractive pull in the story.
0: Yeah. And it's even talking about that and how it's treated in different stories. As we said, this was a different era. The part of this story, there are consequences to this actions that are not dealt with in this story. They're dealt with in Captain America 340, which came out at the same time. Because mm-hmm. when Captain America and Iron Man face off at the prison, when he's stealing the guardsman's equipment at the vault in Denver, some of those criminals break free. Right, right. And that story is followed up with in Captain America 340, which I haven't read because I'm trying to restrict what I read to just what's on the list at the moment. (laughs) But it says, you know, for the epic conclusion of this story on the page where you find out Mr. Hyde is one of the guys that's gone, they say, follow up in Cap 340, I checked the cover, and it's Captain America as the captain, so Steve Rogers, and the escaped convicts. So, I mean, the reason Steve disappears is because he's too busy cleaning up Tony's mess. Right. So, again, Tony's actions, even in trying to correct his earlier actions, cause consequences here. All the only mention I get from of Steve Rogers after that is Tony says, you know, he's lost one of his greatest friends. And he right. knows that. He's destroyed that friendship. He's not an Avenger anymore.
1: Right. And for us as readers, as sort of analysts, we step back and say, that's some impressive editing. That's a firm hand in that office. That is getting these crossovers from story to story to work that seamlessly. And that's something you don't always see today, you know, unless it is a total company-wide, you know, event of some kind. But these little steps where what happens in Iron Man affects Cap for a little while and back and forth. That's a firm hand on the rudder.
0: Yeah, it's much nicer than the Daredevil-Iron Man crossover from the early 70s dealing with Nick Fury and the Scorpio Key. After Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. was cancelled, there was a story that picked up right. there. If you read them as they're collected, it's a pretty great read. There's some cases where there's inconsistencies, probably because the scripts weren't detailed enough and two artists took two different interpretations. Mm-hmm. The consequences of the scene are the same, but the details are a little off. But I was digging into that when I was discussing it on Dave's Daredevil podcast, and found, because of the publication method methodologies of the time, parts one and three were published in Iron Man, before Part 2 was published in Daredevil. Whoops. So.
1: That's why you have inventory stories on hand, just in case that happens.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's... Sometimes they, they go out of alignment, but yeah, if you're reading it that way, reading the issues with the matching cover dates, it does read very well. And one of the things I noticed, actually, at one point I was trying to do a read-through of all Marvel publications from Fantastic Four number one on, that were in continuity with the exception of Millie the Model, which is technically in continuity because she shows up at one of Tony's parties and is friends with Patsy Walker, who Avengers fans know much better. Yeah, I actually have noticed in that era, if you read everything with the same cover date in alphabetical order by title, it works. (laughs) And everything happens in sequence, even if they're bouncing around within stories. Right, right. Interesting. For a long time. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, we do have this. And as readers have probably picked up, we do both agree that this definitely belongs on the list. Yeah. I think... Looking at the list, there are some things that that should be higher. There are some things that are below it on the list that I argue could be higher than it as Well, though, mm-hmm. I mean it, it, it's hard to beat the Mobius Silver Surfer. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> there's, you know, there's some aspect I think we we may have touched on this in the in the uh, in the Thor uh, coverage, but there's a bit of a bias towards uh, some recent events, not not at the very top of the list. Uh, yeah. The, there's some classics uh in there, but you know in the 25 through 50 range, there's some more modern stories that I think might not stand the test of time as much.
0: Yeah, it it'll be interesting to compare this to what I assume is going to be Marvel's 100th anniversary list,
1: <laughs> which depending how you count things might not be is not going to be 25 years from now.
0: No, if this goes well, I expect that in 39
1: or their 60th list after of 2021 (laughs) however you count it the you 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 can come up with a list every couple of years of a major milestone just depending where you want to start counting yeah the modern era or
0: anyway i'd like to thank professor Allen for joining us again i think that's about all we have to say about iron man armor wars it is one we can recommend readers track down i think
1: absolutely great to be here again blaine
0: great to have you back and we will Be back again next week when we discuss Avengers Kang Dynasty, which is Avengers Volume 3, issues 41 to 55, the last Kurt Busiek arc since the relaunch, which was reprinted in Avengers Kang Dynasty, so a collected edition of all 15 issues, as well as Avengers Assemble Volume 5, collecting the Kurt Busiek run in five different hardcover volumes, and it can also be found on the 40 Years of the Avengers DVD-ROMs. So, thank you for listening, and join us again next week.
1: You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than $0.25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect join me in the quarter bin where even bad comics are a bargain and good ones are a steal the quarter bin podcast is part of the relatively geeky podcast network visit us at relatively geeky or search relatively geeky or quarter bin podcast in itunes i guarantee it'll be worth every penny